It's great to be with you guys. My name is Sandy Isfeld, and looking forward to getting into the scriptures with you here in just a few minutes. And uh, we were away last weekend uh, with our pastors, elders, and spouses at our annual uh, getaway in which we seek God, pray, and discern how He's leading in our church. And it was a phenomenal weekend for us. I want to thank those of you who prayed for us. And we're just so excited about 2017. We feel it's a pivotal year, um, a year of shifting into another level of kingdom impact and uh, many exciting things that are going on. Let me mention one of them. It has to do with kids' ministries. This is perhaps the largest ministry that we run here in this church, and it's such a vital part of our whole life here. Two weeks ago, we had Pastor Dwight and Ashley, our kids' director, up here. They were sharing with you the vision, uh, the opportunities, the challenges, and the needs. And you guys remember that we did ask you to respond. So the good news is, 15 people responded to sign up for Kids Ministries. that good? Clap long. Okay, because we actually need 40 more. Right, we were hoping for 60 the first time around. So we're coming to you again. Uh, one of my roles is to let you know what's really going on around here. And we need your response. We need you to help out uh, in this key area. Uh, kids is, is, is a very important part of our church life and our future. So here's some things that will help you think through that. We have ratios that we need to adhere to. We have policies that protect us. We don't just sort of throw kids in a classroom, dump off some sugar donuts and say, we'll see you in an hour and a half. We are teaching them. We are training them. We are praying with them. They're worshiping just like we are. And, uh, and so we need people involved. Not everybody has to be a group leader. We sometimes just need parental support. So parents... We need you to help out, and it's a very reasonable ask. Once every six weeks in one service, and if all the parents do that, I think, bang, all the needs will be met instantaneously. Now, I know that some of you parents, you're serving in other areas. We'll exempt you. If that's what you need to do, we get that. We understand that. But there's only about 20% of our parents involved in kids' ministries. So it's like 80%. That's a lot of people. Now, I'm a dad, and when my sons were in hockey, uh, I remember we'd go down to the rink, and you know we paid money to put our kids in that sport, and uh, we also had to volunteer. We'd go to parents' meetings. I ended up being timekeeper, so I'm like paying for my kid to play hockey, and I'm running the timekeeper's clock in most of the games for years. It's just understood out there, whether it's soccer, dance, whatever, there's volunteering. So we come to the local church, and we know it's the same thing, Right? We are a volunteer organization. We need your help, parents. We need you to respond. And then the other pitch is for people who are not parents. Uh, there's many of us here who are not yet involved in a ministry area, or you have more margin, or you have more time, you're single, you're not married, or you've just got ample room in your life to serve in other areas. Would you respond to? Uh, this is a really big need for us. Friends, we're at a point, if things don't change, we'll be capping classes and shutting things down in some ages. We don't want to do that. We don't want to turn any kids away. Uh, we need your help. So pull out the form. It says parents form, but it's really for anybody who wants to respond. Fill it out during the message here while I'm talking. Take it to the Welcome Center. Uh, when this service is over, drop it off, and we'll include you in the getting ready for the team training. Thank you so much for responding to all of that. Well, I'm going to invite you to turn now in your Bibles to three passages. So Exodus chapter 34, then Ezekiel chapter 18, and 1 John chapter 1. There'll be some other passages we'll look at. We'll bring them up as we get to them. Exodus 34, Ezekiel 18, 1 John chapter 1. 
mark those areas with a piece of paper or something. You know, I can't help but think God is up to something in this service, just like he was at the 9 a.m. service. We had an amazing breakthrough uh, for many people's lives, and I anticipate and believe God's got something in store for a lot of us here today. Um, And out of all the messages in this You, Me, We series, this one may really land uh, in some people's hearts in a special way. And it all comes down to this. We're talking about freedom here. If you want, there is freedom and fullness available to you in Jesus right now. And did I say right now? Right now. You can have freedom and fullness in Jesus. And we'll encourage you to take steps in that direction uh, as we get into the message this morning. What we're looking at here in our series is what we call origin issues, particularly healing from family wounds. Oh, isn't that a great topic to preach on in the church? Are we crazy or what? (laughs) You know, uh, but this is important ground for us. And we're going to see from the Bible how we can actually be healed from some of the wounds in our family uh, history if we have been wounded. And Jesus is going to set us free. But I want to start with this. Uh, Maybe you've heard of the, the young married mother who sent an email to her husband's mom saying, quote, Dear mother in law, I don't need you to teach me how to handle my children. I'm living with one of yours, and he's got a lot of work yet to do. <laughs> Not bad. Pretty gutsy for a young mom. I'm living with your kid. He's not grown up yet. He's 27. Oh, yeah, right. You know, we often think that the stuff that we get into and the baggage that we carry around is just our baggage. It doesn't hurt anybody else. It doesn't affect anyone else. But that's not true. The ripple effect of our dysfunction, if I can say, uh, our, our, our problems affects many people in our lives. And it's all rooted in how sin gets tangled up and how it distorts a whole community. So we end up thinking, well, my brokenness is just my brokenness. My sins are just my sins. I'm not hurting anyone else. But family sin patterns exist. And they do have to be identified and dealt with so that we can walk in freedom and fullness as men and women. So I'm going to read our first passage for us, Exodus 34, beginning at verse 5. And the words will be up on the screen, or you can turn in your Bibles to follow along. This is an occasion when Moses went up Mount Sinai and he was about to have an encounter with the living God. You remember earlier he'd said, Lord, show me your face. And God said to him, no one can see my face and live, but I'll pass by in front of you. So God is going to meet him up on the mountain. God said, chisel out out a couple of stones there. Uh, You broke the first set, the Ten Commandments. Bring them up in the mountain so I can write on them again and I'll meet you up on the mountain. Then we pick it up in verse 5. Then the Lord came down in the cloud and stood there with him and proclaimed his name, the Lord. And he passed in front of Moses, proclaiming, The Lord, the Lord, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands and forgiving wickedness, rebellion, and sin. Yet he does not leave the guilty unpunished. He punishes the children and their children for the sin of the parents to the third and fourth generation. And we're going to explore that passage here together as we look at this thing called healing from family wounds. And we're going to pay attention in particular to exposing family 
sin patterns. Stay there in Exodus 34. Just hang with me there for a while in that great text. What kind of God is presented in that text? Isn't it a God of grace and mercy, a compassionate God? It says he's slow to get angry. How many of you are glad for that? I'm so glad God is slow to get angry. That he abounds in love and faithfulness, that he maintains love to thousands that he's a God who's willing to forgive wickedness, rebellion, and sin. That's the kind of God he is. He's a good God, a good supreme being. He's a good, good father. He's always willing to restore anyone who comes to him for mercy. You can go to him and he will forgive you. He's provided for that. He wants us to come to him. He wants us to be free of all of the baggage that sin brings into our lives. That's the kind of God that's presented there. He's not easily ticked off. He's not moody or manicky. He doesn't switch postures on us in the middle of a conversation so that we don't know what to expect from him. He is consistently a God of goodness, mercy, and grace and love. However, he is not a God who will be mocked. He takes us seriously, and so he asks us to take him seriously. And that means that when people continue to perpetuate an unrighteous or sinful uh, activity in their lives that they inherited from a previous generation, God says, I'm going to pay attention to that. I'm going to bring consequences to that. And he applies those consequences to that ongoing behavior. Some people get really confused about this passage in Exodus 34 because when you read it, it kind of sounds like God is punishing innocent people. But that's actually not what it says. Take a look at it again. It says, Yet he does not leave the guilty unpunished. And then it explains the kind of punishment that happens. And it's really unpacking for us that God is visiting, God is applying consequences to generations of people who continue to do the sins of their forefathers. It's not talking about punishing the innocent. And when it uses the word punish, it really means to apply certain consequences. It's like there's laws that are broken, and so something must be done. Now, in Ezekiel 18, we get a little bit more clarity on this. So I'm trying to help you really nail this down so that you feel confident about it. Ezekiel chapter 18, it's about the one who sins will die. And it tells the story of a righteous man who does righteous things. It says in verse 9, he will surely live. Then he has a son, beginning in verse 10, a violent son, who does unrighteous things. Verse 13, will such a man live? He will not, because he's done all these detestable things. He is to be put to death. His blood will be on his own head. But then this guy, this bad son, has a son. And so it's the grandson now. And the grandson is righteous. He does not eat at the mountain shrines. He does not defile his neighbor's wife and so on and so on. And it says at the end of the page there, he will not die for his father's sins. He will surely live, but his father will die for his own sin because he practiced extortion, robbed his brother, and did what was wrong among the people. Yet you ask, why does the son not share the guilt of his father? Since the Son has done what is just and right and has been careful to keep my decrees, he will surely live. The one who sins is the one who will die. The child will not share the guilt of the parent, nor will the parent share the guilt of the child. 
The righteousness of the righteous will be credited to them, and the wickedness of the wicked will be charged against them. All of that to say, we are responsible to God in our own generation. So in Exodus 34, God's not saying, I'm going to punish innocent people. No, no. It's saying, I'm going to punish the, the children who continue to perpetuate the sinful patterns of their preceding generation. This is really what we're looking at here. And remember that any time a person repents of that and says to God, Oh, God, forgive me. May your mercy fall upon me. God restores them. He forgives them instantly. But what we're talking about here is a pattern of behavior, of lifestyle, in which people stubbornly continue to resist God, and family sin patterns are passed from one generation to the next to the next. God will not be mocked about this. Now, you might think that this whole phrase here, family sin patterns, you know, is that something that psychologists made up so they could sell books? You know, is that really just a trendy, cool word? Well, it is kind of trendy and cool. Uh, and the phrase does not appear in the Bible that way, family sin patterns, but the reality does. Let me give you some examples. Anybody know who Abraham is? Father of our faith, kind of an important figure in the Bible. Abraham, called by God in his generation, he had some family sin patterns happening for him. What we know is that Abraham had a problem with lying. When he went down to Egypt, he had his wife Sarai with him. Uh, Pharaoh, the leader of Egypt, liked the look of Sarai, and he kind of wanted her, and Abraham said, well, this is my sister. He didn't call her his wife, and he lied about his wife. Now, those of you women who are here that are married, if your husband did that, what would you do to him? You would stick him with a spear really quickly, right? Come on. So Abraham lies, uh, and then his son Isaac does the same thing. He has a beautiful bride named Rebekah. He lies about her to Abimelech, the king of the Philistines. He says, oh, she's my sister, not my wife. He lies. Isaac has two sons, Jacob and Esau. And Jacob and his mother, Rebekah, conspire together to deceive Esau out of his birthright. So they dress up Jacob in some funny clothes and make him smell like uh, Esau. And then he goes before his father, who's getting old, and he gets the blessing. And they lie their way to the blessing. Then Jacob flees. He has to work for 14 years to get the wife he wants, Rachel. And on the journey towards that, he is lied to by his father-in-law, Laban. Then Jacob has 12 sons, and one of them is Joseph, right? The guy that wears that spectacular Calvin Klein coat of many colors. And uh, he's kind of boasting about it. He's got dreams. He's prophetic, and he's like, wow, God's showing me lots of, uh, lots of things about my future and, and about you guys and my family, and his brothers hated him. So they conspired together, and they took him, threw him into a cistern, which is like a reservoir for water, uh, got rid of him. Some Egyptian slave traders picked him up, took him uh, on a journey, and they went home and lied to their dad about it. They said, you know, uh, Joseph has been killed by a wild animal, and they lied to their dad. Even Joseph himself, when he's reunited with his brothers in Egypt, he hides his true identity from them until he can't stand it anymore. And he finally breaks the sin pattern and says, I'm Joseph. Comes out into the light. I don't know, anyone have any family lineage like that? Where there's lying in the background of previous generations? People don't tell the truth. You say, you know, what happened to Uncle Harry? Why did he shoot himself with a shotgun? And no one talks about it. Or they say, oh, well, you know, he was just imbalanced or whatever. 
Or, you know, why did, why did so-and-so break up? Why did their marriage end? And some lie is given about that, and it's perpetuated from one generation to the next. Here's another biblical example. David, this great king of, of Israel, the greatest king of all. Um, he struggles, though, with sexual temptation. He's a handsome guy, and he knows it. He's powerful. He's rich. Sees a woman bathing one day, and he goes, I want her. She's another man's wife. So what he does is he conspires to have her husband killed. His name is Uriah. Puts him in battle. He gets killed. He takes Bathsheba home, and she becomes his wife. They have a son. Okay? This is all in adultery. David is confronted by Nathan the prophet. And uh, so he realizes that he's sinned. But so far, it's already happening in the family. Now the sin of adultery is released. Solomon, his son, grows up to become a great king. He has a penchant for women too. He enjoys sex with lots of women from different cultures and different countries, even burning incense at their idols. And his heart goes astray. David's son Absalom has sex with David's court concubines out in public daylight. And David's other son Ammon rapes his daughter Tamar. This is sexual sin going from one generation to the next. Here's the thing. God sees all that stuff. God is not mocked. God is not, you know, unaware. (laughs) And just like he sees all the brokenness and dysfunction and wounding in our own lives and marriages, he still wants us to be free from that. He wants to help us prevent the choices that have been made in other generations that weren't good. So remember the kind of God that he is, that he's, he's compassionate, gracious, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love. I love that phrase. Maintaining love to thousands. God is willing to maintain that relationship with us if we're willing to maintain it with him. So here's the question then. How can I be free from family sin patterns and wounds from my family background if I have anything like that? Is it really possible to end the ongoing perpetual patterns of sinful choices that have perhaps shaped my life? The answer is yes. Of course, things can change. I don't have to perpetuate what was given to me if it wasn't right. Here's how we can step into it. First of all, we need to recognize family sin patterns. Now, you're all pretty smart people. So I just want to say it to you this way. Just start thinking about this stuff. And you'll recognize if there's something there in your family background that isn't right. Chances are, for most of us, there's something we've inherited from our parents that is far less than ideal. As good as they are, as as much as we honor them and love them and appreciate them, chances are there's something that we've inherited from our previous generation that isn't quite right, or it's actually destructive. And we have to make choices about that ending in our life, in our time, in our generation. So how do you recognize these things? Well, you think about them. (laughs) So just ponder these things as I kind of roll through them and see if any of them um, indicate to you that you may have inherited something like this. How about divorce problems in a family? Divorce going from one generation to the next generation to the next generation. When you see that happening, that is a family sin pattern. That there's a, there's a breakdown in marriages. And 
We just get used to that. We think, oh, well, probably every marriage in our family is going to go sideways. No, it doesn't have to. We can, we can put an end to those things. How about addictions in family members? Alcoholism, drug addiction, um, addicted to gambling, occult involvement, tarot cards, fortunes told, seances, communication with the dead, teacup reading, passed along from one generation to the next, and watch out for yoga. Yes, yoga. You know what the word yoga means? Yoke. Talk about yokes. This is not a yoke you want on you. And uh, yoga at its, at its elementary stages is, is kind of okay. It's not too bad. But you get past level one, you're on your journey into Eastern pantheistic mysticism. It's all based in a Hindu philosophy of life. And I would say to you, honestly, avoid that. Sexual distortion and abuse, child molestation, weird sexual brokenness. Have you noticed, even just in watching television, how, how sometimes molestation in one generation is repeated in the next? Why is that? Because sin is powerful, and it'll seek to permeate through to the next generation if we allow it. There's also violence and aggressive argumentative behavior. You know, you might be sitting at home at the kitchen table, and you find yourselves arguing like your parents used to argue. And, you're, and you said to yourself at one point, I'm never going to be like that. And now here you are in your own home and you're perpetuating the same atmosphere, the same tendency. Could be that. Physical abuse, bullying, intimidation, being bullied, all of that. Those are some of the more obvious ones. So ponder that. Is that in my background at all? Do I have to kind of take some action against that? Here are some of the softer ones, the nicer ones, like family secrets. Secret things that are just not talked about. We don't talk about that issue. Why so-and-so left the family. Or we don't talk about what happened when your brother died. Or we don't talk about what happened when, when dad moved out of home for two years and we never saw him. We don't talk about those things. Or just performance-driven living. Overproving what you can do. Where did, where did that come from? Maybe that came from someone else in your background. And the script that you've got in your life is you've got to work really hard to prove yourself. So just work hard. Nothing wrong with working hard. Working hard is a good virtue. But overproving yourself means you're not living in your true identity in Christ. It means that you're stressed. It means you can't trust God for something. How about curses that are spoken over your family? Maybe three or four generations ago. You know, I'm just shocked as we move more and more into, into freedom ministries and deliverance ministries. I am shocked how much this is a real factor for people. We have prayed for people and broken off curses from generations past and seen the light go on in their eyes and seen the freedom gained and seen addictions fall to the ground. Why? Because they broke off a curse from a previous generation. I'm just stunned at how much that actually affects us. And then I think, wow, we've got to make sure that our people know that there's freedom available. What about depression and suicide and self-destruction and cutting? If that's showing up in your family and it's shown up in a previous generation, guess what? Maybe you can end it in Jesus Christ. Maybe you can be the first person in the family tree to say, that's it, it stops right here, right now. And you take authority over it. Maybe it's chronic sickness 
Maybe it's even certain diseases that are passed along. And we think, oh, well, you know, grandma died of it. My mom died of it. I guess I'm going to die of it. Well, really? Do you have to? There is a relationship in the Bible between sickness and sin. It's complex, but there is a relationship. I think you get the picture here. Can I share something with you out of my own life that I had to take and deal with from my background? Uh, I have grown up in a home of uh, Icelandic heritage people, so anybody who's Scandinavian, you're probably in this camp too. Uh, I have uh, the tendency in my family towards depression and anxiety. It's on both sides. For generations, there have been people who have struggled with depression and, and anxiety. On my mom's side and my dad's side. It just is, right? So depression showed up in my life in my early 20s. I remember the summer, living in Calgary, renting a house with five other Christian guys. I went into this sort of spiritual fog for a while, an emotional fog too, and uh, almost lost the will to live. That's a scary feeling when you're in your early 20s. And uh, I moved into the garage because I wanted to be alone, and I would sleep 12 hours a day. I had a sleeping bag, sleeping in a cold garage floor while everybody else was in the house. I would go to work, come back from work, and go to sleep. And uh, there's a whole bunch of other factors in my life. Wasn't eating properly and so on. Wasn't taking care of myself. And I remember how depressed I was. The only thing that got me through the night was putting on Sony Walkman earphones and listening to Handel's Messiah. And I would eventually fall asleep because I was so depressed. Finally, that lifted. I didn't even know it was depression. I'm looking at it now going, wow, I was a clinically depressed person. Then it shows up again in my third year of Bible college which was a strange year for me. I don't know, everybody, you ever have a strange year? Wasn't 2016 like that? Everybody agree? That was a weird year, right? Too much going on there. I, I had a weird year uh, in Bible college, third, third year, and uh, I struggled with depression, and the only way that I could get relief is I would walk at night around a baseball diamond in southeast Regina, and I would pray and pray and pray and sing to God, and find some relief. I probably needed help beyond that. Then it showed up in my ministry here in Airdrie. And uh, I've had a couple episodes where God's led me to more freedom, but I'll just tell you of one of them. It was about 12 years ago or so. And uh, feeling that pull into that black hole of depression. And, and we had a prophetic woman in our church who came up to me, and she came to my house. This is around Christmas time. Christmas Eve service was over, and she knocked on the door on December 27th on a Wednesday, she said, can I meet with you and your wife for a second? I said, sure. Knew her, and uh, she came in, and uh, she said to me, I, I've got a word from the Lord for you. I said, okay, bring it on. And she says, the Lord wants you to know that you have a, a, uh, an ancestry line that is releasing depression in you. And it's not from you, but you've inherited this, and if you take authority over it in Jesus' name, it'll end. But you have to take authority over it. And I was struggling with gloominess 12 years ago, and I thought, I am going to go in this direction. I thanked her for that. I went for a walk in the snow. <laughs> so many times God has met me in the snow. And it was a cold day, probably minus 22 or minus 24. Wind was blowing. I covered up with a, with a big coat and a scarf over my face and mitts and toque and everything. And I went to a field outside the city, and I'm walking in the snow. When I got about halfway out there, I said, this is where it is ends. Lord Jesus, in your name, 
If there is anything in my ancestry background that is bringing a spirit of depression or heaviness or gloom towards me, in your name and in the power of your name, I break it off right now through the power of Jesus Christ and his shed blood. Instantly, something happened in my torso, and I felt this strong sense of God's presence come up through me. I wept. I sang. I have the gift of tongues. I was singing in the Spirit. I'm praising God. I'm, my tears are turning to icicles. And I'm like, I'm not leaving this spot. This is where heaven touches earth. I'm staying here. I don't care if I freeze to death. Jesus set me free from depression. He set me free from depression. Now it's still in my physical body background. I've got to be alert to that. I still have to do certain things, certain spiritual disciplines to not give in to it. But the stronghold was broken. The stronghold was broken. And I say that to you so you understand how real this is. We put up with too much sometimes. We go way too long sometimes just saying, I got no choice about this. It's just the way my family goes and I'm going to have to survive this. No, you don't. You can take a stand in Jesus' name. Now, I want to say to those of you who maybe have clinical depression and God has not yet healed you, there is nothing wrong with taking medication. That is God's gift to heal you until he heals you supernaturally. So don't think I'm, I'm saying that you're a bad person because you're doing that. There's different kinds of depression. I think you guys understand that. But even that kind of depression can be healed by Jesus. Amen? Why not ask for it? Why not ask for it and see what he does for you? I think that sometimes we just wait too long. We put up with too much. When we should say, no more. I am done with this. Jesus, I am claiming your sufficiency in my life. I'm going to stand on God's truth. I'm going to stand in Christ. And when we do that, our lives begin to experience his victory and his power. So maybe take a moment right now and just ponder as I'm speaking here this morning. You know, is the Spirit of God whispering to you something that you need freedom from? Think of all the things we've covered so far. Just reflect on that. And listen for the whisper of God's Spirit speaking to you. Is there something in your family background, as much as you love your parents perhaps, is there something that you've inherited that is connected to the realm of darkness that needs to be broken off of you today? Ask Him to show you that. And if you get a picture or an image or a memory or a word, take that to God and say, God, are you speaking to me right now? Because if he is, he's showing you how you can become free. And there's freedom and fullness in Jesus available for you right now. Take a moment to do that. You might think, well, my parents weren't so bad. I get that. This is not about dishonoring your parents. This is about just taking all the good gifts of God that he wants to pour into your life. You can honor your parents and still take action on things that weren't right. I think we just call it normal and we put up with things that we should be letting go of. This is all about practicing self-awareness, which I think in our part of the world, we don't do a good job at that. We don't slow down enough to really reflect on our lives, so... We've got to do that a little bit in worship services like this. We've got to reflect. We've got to prayerfully open up our heart and our soul wide to God and say, Father, is there something that you want to accomplish inside of me? Is there any area of my soul that's blocked to you? Is there something that I've inherited from my grandparents or my great-grandparents or my parents 
that is pulling me in the wrong direction. The Bible says, think of yourself with sober judgment. So here's the thing. If you recognize the sin pattern, then you must walk in the light. And when you walk in the light, there is freedom. 1 John chapter 1, verse 5. This is the message we have heard from him and declare to you. God is light. In him there is no darkness at all. If we claim to have fellowship with him and yet walk in the darkness, we lie and we do not live out in the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus his son purifies us from all sin. It's good news, right? From all sin, purified. Walking in the light means I allow no darkness to have its root in me. It means I'm vigilant with my soul. And that darkness, the Bible describes it as a gross darkness that covers the people. If I'm walking in the light, it means I will allow no secrets to be passed along in my generation. That's a great tactic of the enemy is to help you to hold on to some secrets that nobody else knows about. Because if you told them, they would reject you. It's the enemy who whispers to you that that thing that you were involved in, don't tell anyone because it'll just go bad for you. They won't be able to handle it. That mistake you made in your marriage, don't tell your spouse about it. Hide it from her the rest of your, her life or his life. What you don't know won't hurt people. Well, that's not true. People are hurt by what they don't know. The effect is there in the relationship. It's broken. And I think that when we dare to live in the light, we find ourselves saying, I am not going to live with secrets. This is something that we encourage people to do at our Soul Care Conference, which is coming up in June here, and in the book Soul Care by Rob Reamer. We encourage people to get rid of all secrets and to do a full life confession with a trusted friend. So think of the most trustworthy friend that you have who's a believer. If you haven't done this yet, go to them and say to them, you know what, I need to do a full life confession, and I need you to pronounce grace and forgiveness over me when I'm done. This stays with you, and you have to trust them. You do a full life confession. Anything that needs to be brought out. You may have already asked forgiveness for it from God, but God is saying to you, yeah, I want someone else to know about that. I want it in the light. When I did my full life confession with one of my closest friends, I was like, wow, this is like unbuckling something inside of my soul that gives me more freedom. And I can stand here today and say to you, I've got no secrets. I don't have parts of my life that are hidden from people and there's a distorted me over here that no one knows about. I am a work in progress, but I have no secrets. And I encourage you to lay hold of that ground. That's when you're walking in the light. And then the next thing is to walk into life-giving repentance. The Bible has a lot to say about repentance, doesn't it? Right? To repent of actual sinful patterns. So whether it's a family generational thing or you're just doing it on your own, repentance is life-giving. So we turn away from those areas that we're stumbling into. It might be lust. It might be pornography. It might be gambling. Uh, it might be an addiction. It might be overworking. How about this one? It might be not staying close enough to Jesus in intimacy. We forget to repent of that sin. Maybe we need to repent of a false self that we've created over the years. The Christianese self where we just look okay, sound okay, we act okay. 
Maybe we need to confess to our spouse some area of our life that we've been withholding our soul from. Maybe it's our sexual intimacy and we, we just don't even want to go there anymore. And, and so we've shut down to our spouse in the area of sexual intimacy. That needs to be dealt with and repented of. Here are some of the bigger things that we need to repent of. Let me just mention these ones. Bitterness and unforgiveness. <laughs> when we minister to people, almost every time at the beginning, we say, do you have anyone you need to forgive? Before we pray for you to be filled with the Holy Spirit or to be healed or whatever, is there anyone in your life that you are holding bitterness towards? Because if you are, chances are God's not going to give you what you want. He's not going to just douse you with his presence if you're angry and you're sort of stone cold in your heart towards someone because they hurt you. He's going to not give his spirit to you when you're hard like that. He can't. It won't work. So if that's true, don't lose hope, but just face the fact you've got some wounds in your life that bitterness has caused, and you need to repent of the bitterness, and you need to be healed of the wound. Maybe you've been hurt by your parents. Maybe they didn't do a very good job in affirming you and pronouncing love over you. Or you've been hurt by your spouse or your sibling. Or you've been neglected in your family. You've been looked over. Maybe you've been burned in a job and treated with contempt by a friend who betrayed you. And all of that shows up, perhaps, in a heart that says, I am so angry with you, and I will not forgive you for the rest of my life. And friends, when we go there, we have now built a prison around our own soul, a prison of bitterness. And when you're in that prison, you have a sick satisfaction, perhaps, of looking at that person and going, yeah, I know what you did to me. That's really kind of demonic. You read Ephesians 4, and it warns us about giving a topos, a, an area, a location in our lives to the devil. And usually that happens when there's unrighteous anger. So, is there someone you need to forgive today? Is there someone that you need to release today? Someone who has hurt you, wounded you, uh, spoiled you, afflicted you? Why not transfer all of their judgment to God? Let God handle them. He'll handle them. I guarantee you. That's why Jesus says, bless your enemies. Why does he say that? So we can be released from the judgment of that, of that situation and so he can take care of them. Just, just release people to God. If we don't, we're pretending we're God. <laughs> Remember that prayer that Jesus taught us to pray? Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be your name, and so on. He's, and in that prayer he said, pray this. Forgive us our sins as we forgive those who sin against us. He connects the two. It's like he's saying, I dare you to pray this way. As I forgive people here who have sinned against me, when I'm really forgiving, I want you to forgive me. If I don't forgive them, then don't forgive me. I don't know about you, but I want this forgiveness. I want the vertical forgiveness all the time, which means I need to be quick to forgive anyone who hurts me. Can I let you in on a secret? Pastors get hurt in churches. <laughs> every now and then it happens, right? It happens in every church. And uh, we have to deal with that stuff in our hearts all the time. Because God won't let us take a step forward until we deal with it. I remember being in a retreat center 
God flooding to me pictures of people's faces that I had to forgive for wounds of the past. And there had been a whole bunch of stuff built up in my life, a whole bunch of junk. I had to repent of it. I cried. I wept. And then I blessed those people. And I was released from the burden when I did that. Because we're all imperfect. We need to have grace for each other. Who do you need to forgive? Is it your mom? Is it your dad? Is it your spouse? Perhaps there's issues to solve in the marriage. Maybe things aren't going well. That's another topic. Those need to be handled appropriately too. But bitterness is just going to wreck everything. If you want freedom and fullness, they're available to you right now in Jesus. We step into this when we lay hold of our authority to gain freedom. Jesus gave us authority. And we don't have to ask for it. We do have to ask for the anointing, but you don't have to ask for authority. Authority is given. He's given it to us. We can go to the throne room of grace anytime. We live from heaven towards earth, not from earth up to heaven, right? So as we're living from heaven towards earth, it, the Bible says we're seated in heavenly places in Christ Jesus. We are seated above the realm of the enemy. He is underneath us. We're above him. We have authority over him. It says in Luke 10, we have authority to trample on scorpions and snakes. That's a metaphor for Satan. We trample on him through the authority of Jesus Christ. Not our authority. Not our power. It's his name that chases the demons away. Use that authority. Use it. You don't even have to be good at it. Just use it. <laughs> Jesus, in your name, I lay hold of your authority, which you've placed in my life to say no to the enemy's advance. It ends right here. And when we step out of the fear of doing that, then the guilt and the shame comes off of us. Romans 8, 1 and 2 says this, There is therefore now no condemnation. Thank you, God. No condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, because through Christ Jesus, the law of the Spirit of life has set me free from the law of sin and death. No condemnation. No shame. Guilt atoned for. All of that cut off by Jesus Christ. When we take these steps into this kind of freedom, the, the final thing we have to do is we need to ask for the filling of His Spirit in our souls. He wants to give us that. Jesus says, Whom the Son has set free, He is free indeed. And freedom comes when the Spirit of God has full reign in our hearts and lives. He who knew no sin, the Bible says, became sin for us, that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Jesus didn't just carry sin, he became sin. He absorbed all of our wounds, all of our sickness, all of our shame, all of our family sin patterns, all of our addictions, all of our fears, all of our sicknesses and diseases, all of our anxiety and stress and depression. He took that all upon himself, and made atonement for it, breaking that power base through the cross, shattering that power that was there by the enemy of our souls. And through his resurrection, he offers us complete freedom and newness of life, which comes through his spirit. We are the people who are more than conquerors. That's why Jesus said in Matthew 11, he said, I've got a deal for you. I want you to come to me. All of you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, 
For I'm gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Think of a, think of a yoke. Think of like a, like, like a piece of wood that is connecting you to other people or other situations. Jesus is saying, I've got a yoke for you, and it's very, very light. But be yoked to me. Did you hear the invitation? Come to me. Come to me. You're weary. Come to me. You're burdened. Come to me. You're you're perpetuating your your family lineage in the area of sinful choices. Come to me. You need healing. Come to me. You're discouraged. Come to me. And I will set you free. So we're going to step into a time of worship here and invite you to stand together. Let's do that. We're entering into a moment here with God where fullness and freedom can happen for us. So here's what I want to invite you to do. During this worship time, I'm inviting you to recognize any family sin patterns in your life that you are now responsible for. Guess what, friends? It's up to you to let it end in this generation. Jesus will help you with this. Recognize it. Choose to walk in the light. No secrets. Repent of anything that you need to repent of. Claim the authority that is yours in Jesus. And say it ends here right now. In his name, I take authority over this activity in my life, this tendency that I have. I take authority over it in Jesus' name. Lord, set me free. The Bible says resist the devil and he will flee from you. Our part is to resist. Jesus strengthens us for that. So we're going to worship for a time here. I'm going to ask our ministry team to come on up to the front and be available. If during this the song that you're about to sing, you want to come up and be prayed for, come on up here. Our great people will be here to pray with you, to minister to you. Let's let our eyes be upon Jesus in this moment. This is a moment of great freedom. And the final word that God gives us is mercy triumphs over judgment. There's a lot of mercy that's here today from the Lord. So take advantage of it. Let's press in near to you.